taken taken us through a lot of history, and I I'm, I'm appreciative since I didn't bring my slides. Uh, but basically, um, it is interesting that a topic of this importance uh, uh, can be continually exposed and at the same time swept under the rug. Um, and uh, I think I might ask a, a question here of the audience. How many of you would say you're from the policy uh, or management communities? How many are you from the clinical? Are you actually practicing clinical medicine? And how many of you are doing academic research in, in clinical evaluation? Well, I'm glad to see there's a few. But generally speaking, um, we've been embarrassing academic medical centers now for 25 years, and the response has been pretty much zero. Uh, so there is, a, there is a, a dichotomy between the understanding of the policy community of the importance of practice variations and the willingness of uh, mainline academic medicine to take up the challenge, basically, uh, of practice variations. We started, of course, with Boston and New Haven, and I thought if the you know paper number one might embarrass them enough so they would uh, be interested in inviting me down to at least discuss it. Uh, well, that didn't happen. But paper number three, we did finally get a little bit of interest. But basically, we showed that uh, the most prestigious academic medical centers in the United States, some will argue, um, not necessarily up in Green, up in Hanover, but anyway. Uh, that Boston and New Haven basically practice a very different styles of medicine, both in terms of their use of surgical uh, procedures, the so-called preference-sensitive category, but even more importantly in terms of costs, the overall amount of money they spent in managing chronic illness, which was just about twice as much in Boston as it was in New Haven and could be situated back with the capacity of the system. Now, that during that during that, uh, that second or uh, third paper visit, I did learn uh, maybe some of the reasons why people were puzzled by this and didn't do anything about it. Namely, it was impossible for the clinicians in either Boston Teaching Hospitals or, or, or Yale New Haven to rank themselves in terms of where they stood in terms of variation. It was simply subliminal and was not understood. And it was at that point that uh, I think, again, I, 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 I felt strongly that we needed to have monitoring systems that allowed us to uh, understand what was going on, not only at the clinical level, but at the population level. And that feedback process should, it seemed to me, in a rational society, bring attention to the underlying uh, difficulties. Uh, unfortunately, for the supply-sensitive care, we have almost no examples of upfront understanding that there is chaos in medicine, that there is differences between re reputable places that need to be addressed. And so one of my strong uh, sort of senses, if you don't want to be repeating this in the year 2500, is you've got to get the academic medical centers and you've got to get the clinical responsibility to, to put this practice variation problem on a par with any other clinical research problem that they now are encountering and trying to deal with. So, so that, that's, that's, that's one, one statement. The other thing I would, would remark on is that uh, the BPH study, um, I think, is a very important example of how uh, the progression of thinking goes uh, in the minds of researchers who are clinically oriented. Remember the teams that we put together there were clinically oriented. Al, uh, Mike Berry, uh, others were all qualified, uh, 
practicing physicians uh, and understood the uh, what was going on. Our our interlocutors on this were the clinicians in Maine, whom we had engaged in this process through a, through feedback. They 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 knew what their variation was. They knew where it was. They met with us as researchers. They started arguing about why they were doing just different practice patterns. Uh, it turned out that there was two very different theories of medicine uh, extant at that time, which which we were able to tease out through conversations as well as uh, through uh, peer review, uh, review of the literature, namely that BPH was performed in order to make people live longer because if you don't operate earlier, the the, the problem grows and the kidneys get involved and pretty soon you have a population of people who are dying more rapidly than those who would have surgery. So surgical procedures was undertaken as a preventive theory, a little bit like Glover's original uh, tonsillectomy where this was done to prevent all sorts of bad things happening. On the other hand, there was the quality of life theory, the theory that, well, we don't think the natural history of untreated prostate disease, benign prostatic hyperplasia, is so bad that it warrants early resection, but you do it in order to improve the quality of life. And it was around those two issues that our whole research effort got organized. And by the time uh, we'd been at it for 10 years and working with the urology community in the United States, we basically had gotten consensus that uh, the, the, the uh, uh, quality of life theory was the right one the preventive theory didn't hold water, as we used to say. And basically, um, what uh, was that led immediately to the question of patient preferences and the whole question about getting patients involved, again creating, again creating a clinical level intervention which provides policy people with leverage that they may need in order to control overall costs. What do I mean by that? I'm saying basically, by understanding the fine structure of that decision, by understanding that patients needed to be involved, uh, we essentially created a new method for getting beyond the supplier-induced demand problem where the physician decides, now the patients were going to decide, and that led to the kind of results that, that, that Al mentioned. The, the policy link here now is that uh, we now understand why it's done. We understand what the drivers are of costs. It's namely patient preferences when it's when it's ideally situated. We also now know that uh, the question about co-payments are on the table if we don't like the aggregate costs because patient preferences now are essentially modulated to some extent by whether it's free or not, the more expensive treatment. Mm -hmm. So all sorts of issues now become accessible to the policy level, but only because the clinical uh, understanding, the clinical knowledge base was essentially filled in. Otherwise, we're stuck. So, so I use that as a, as a plea for, for uh, paying good attention to the underlying clinical sciences that are, that are weak, that need to be fixed. And so, uh, to me, I, in the States, this, one of our great problems still is that the NIH pays virtually no attention to this problem. Uh, continues on its concept of what biomedical research is when, in fact, the science of healthcare delivery uh, is fundamentally weak and needs to be enhanced. And I'll make just one final comment on the importance of that work. Uh, it's not just in terms of, of the specific preference-sensitive variability. It's also in terms of the supply-sensitive problems, namely 
and this is what supply-sensitive care is mostly about, is how we manage chronic illness over time is where the big differences in costs are being generated between places like Boston and New Haven, between El Paso and, uh, and McCallum, between Los Angeles uh, and, uh, and Minneapolis. It's, it's these how intensely we treat the chronically ill patients. From the aggregate point of view, we don't see in the data any evidence that more is better in the sense that people who are treated more aggressively in, in, in certain regions live longer than those who are treated less aggressively in other regions. But behind all this uh, is other uh, important requirements that we learn how to manage chronic illness over time. Again, that is a clinical problem. The policymakers can only understand that as the driver of costs, but the question about fixing it uh, ultimately comes down to some understanding about how much capacity we need to generate, how much we have to invest, which is definitely a policy level. But the resistances that you will find, judging from all the fireworks that have come from the Atlas work and all the kinds of things that have happened since we've had that prominent role in the uh, Obama thing, is uh, you need you need you need clinical allies on this because uh, eventually. Uh, the academic medical centers have to face the music. So, 